Welcome back to Those Happy Places, the podcast that treats theme parks, rides, and attractions like literature. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Alice White. And guess what, Alice? What? Today we are joined by two very excellent, very cool guests from the PGAV Destinations Company. Uh, everybody give it up to our two great guests, uh, John and Dave. They're going to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm John Kemper. I'm a vice president with PJV Destinations. I've been with PJV for 34 years, and uh, uh, my education is in architecture from uh, with a degree from the University of Kansas. And I got into the field of animal design uh, because as a kid I was always interested in plants and animals and when I learned that there was a firm right in my own town that had done a zoo exhibit I was excited and wanted to work for them so I started with an internship and then another one and a third one and 35 years later 34 we're here now and one of my um most favorite recent projects is the Heart of Africa at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. And it's a 43 acre project that has giraffes, zebras, lions, uh, all kinds of African uh, animals in a really cool visitor experience. Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah, fun too. (laughs) Uh, And Dave, uh, how about you introduce yourself? Hi, yeah. Hi, I'm Dave Cooperstein. I'm an architect and uh, creative designer at PJAV Destinations. Uh, I've been there for about 21 years now. I uh, have a master's in architecture from uh, the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns. And um, I, it was sort of a long road to, to get to PJV, but it was worth it. I, I, the short version is I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in undergrad. I went to Washington University in St. Louis, go Bears. And um, I took an independent study class and learned about this crazy firm in St. Louis at the time that was doing amazing things with theme parks and zoos and aquariums. And I met someone there. I did an interview. I went to grad school and uh, I studied architecture in grad school because I had this love for architecture. But I grew up with a passion and a love for theater and performing. And so the whole time through grad school, my undergrad and grad school, I was trying to find a way to combine the two, to find a way to take this this love of theater and performing and this talent that I had found for architecture and designing places and, and mash them together. And it was through this independent study in undergrad that I found PJV. And so as I made my way through grad school and I did an internship at PJV, and when I graduated, uh, it was one of the the few places that I really wanted to work. And 21 years later, uh, I'm still here. So it's been pretty great. And um, I, I have there's been a lot of great projects over the years. Um, I have a real affinity for uh, Qimlong Ocean Kingdom in China. I spent five years five years working on the project from start to finish. Uh, I remember going to the site when it was just a series of rice paddies. And and then I was there about three months before the project opened, which was five years later. And it was a full working theme park and animal park. It has the world's largest aquarium. It has roller coasters. It has all kinds of rides and attractions and sort of poured my heart and soul into that project. And really was something incredible to see when when we were over there in China and and the whole place was actually operating. It was pretty amazing. 
Wow, that that does sound like an amazing uh, just experience in general to to go from concept to reality like that um, in that span of time. Um, yeah, it's it's one of the the coolest parts of the job. I, I think it's really interesting what you said about uh, themed spaces as like performative spaces, the the way that they blend the performing arts with architecture. It's something that I haven't really thought about before. And Atlas and I are both uh, huge fans and participators in uh, theater and the performing arts. Yeah, uh, we were both theater kids growing up. <laughs> yes, yeah, so was I. <laughs> and and that, that idea that that's why I feel like I, I understand theme park architecture more than I might other kinds of architecture because it's trying to tell the story that way. Um, and wow, geez, that, that kind of blew my mind. I think we might need an entire second episode <laughs> on that. Um, uh, but we should probably jump right into our questions about uh, zoos and aquariums, which is what we brought you guys on to talk about specifically being experts uh, in designing uh, animal attractions, right? And that's that's sort of a, a new term for us. We we kind of found animal attractions. It's going to be kind of hard for us to say it. Actually, uh, is that <laughs> the the usual parlance? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. So uh, I was I was wondering what um, if you if you've worked on a lot of different projects with PJV Destinations, which covers so many different uh, so many different areas in in themed. And, and design spaces. Uh, what are the core differences you think between designing for an animal attraction over, say, a traditional theme park? And what are the, the biggest challenges that you face? So I, I think uh, the, the biggest difference, obviously, right up front, is that most theme parks don't have animals. Uh, you know, there are <laughs> some noted exceptions like SeaWorld and Bush Gardens, which, you know, we do a lot of work for. But most theme parks, when it comes down to it, you're, you don't have to worry about life support systems. You don't have to worry about holding and support space. There's a whole host of issues that animals bring to the front that when you're designing a, a theme park, you don't have to worry about. And so when you get to designing a zoo or an aquarium, now you got to consider this whole other layer of stuff, right? Um, and then you get into some technical things like uh, capacities of attractions and attendance. There's there's just a whole other scale to theme parks that most zoos, even medium-sized zoos, even some large zoos, don't really come close to. When you talk about the numbers of people that attend and and how to move them through the the park in a reasonable way, it's it's just a different beast, if you will. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, when you deal with zoos and aquariums, and another thing is uh, the the resources that zoos have, whether it's money or staff, is typically way, you know, way less than what a theme park will have. Um, and and then I think the fourth kind of really big thing when you're dealing with zoos and aquariums is that they're all about conservation and education message. So in a theme park, usually you're not having to bring that type of messaging to an attraction to your to the storylines that we that we tell. But that is almost always something that comes to the forefront when you talk about zoos and aquariums. And I am going to let John talk about the, some of the biggest challenges uh, with zoos and, zoo and aquarium design. Yeah, Dave just talked about messaging as one of the differences. And it's also one of the challenges because to me, uh, the, the challenge and the fun of designing for zoos is you got to make the trifecta all pieces successful. 
And the trifecta is the animal, which comes first, the staff, which takes care of that animal, that they have to be able to do their job and let the animal thrive. And then the guests, they have to be engaged and they have to be they have to be open and receive the messages that we want to present and they inherently uh, become educated on by visiting. And so if, if the animals aren't happy, they don't thrive, that's not good. If the staff's not able to do their job, that's not good. If the guest is not having a great time and fully engaged, that's not good. So we pride ourselves on taking uh, a strong interest in all three of those. Uh, and especially the the guest and what they want out of a an attraction or a habitat or an experience, and so it's it's really uh, creating success in that trifecta that is the challenge. And and then of course you know if you talk about differences, you also I, I think you also have to talk about similarities, right? Because uh, for us, no matter what we we're designing. It's all. It all kind of starts with storytelling, whether it's an imagined story or a real story about animals and the environment. The fundamental uh, foundation of what we do is storytelling, and that leads into guest experience. When you talk about you know finding ways to make it great, make an immersive, make a holistic experience, and as we've learned at PJV over the many decades that we've been doing this, we really understand that everything in your day, no matter where you are, whether it's a theme park or a zoo, but everything in your day can be designed and planned. We know where you're gonna go next, what what you're gonna eat, when you're gonna eat, how long you're gonna stay there, where you're gonna go after that. And, and we can plan that out. We have all kinds of spreadsheets and formulas to help us do that. And then lots and lots of years of experience, but all of those things go into making a great experience whether you're at a zoo or a theme park, and all of those things can be applied to either zoos, aquariums, or theme parks. Excellent wow. answers, guys. That that wow. Um, so, uh, I guess I guess one thing that I kind of got stuck on when you guys were talking about uh, the differences is this idea of of difference in um, in resources and the way that resources need to be allocated and managed mm -hmm. and and how. Uh, zoos and aquariums are, by their nature, more educationally focused, and um, how, how they just, uh, they're not necessarily run by the biggest, most wealthy corporations out there, the way that theme parks can be. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit more about that and where funding comes from and what some of the struggle of working with a little less, maybe not struggle, but unique challenges let me share with you there are not many zoos that are run by corporations and so uh, while theme parks can earn their complete revenue on the admission gate zoos cannot they just can't if they charged what it would take to run a whole year of the zoo it people wouldn't go so they have to charge what's uh, reasonably expected and then they have to go out and raise money apart from that and the part that's raised can come from a municipal tax like here in st. Louis 
that either supplements uh, part of the operations or literally fund a fund, creating a fundraising culture where you uh, cultivate donors, corporations, individuals that makes up the difference from what you collect on your gate admissions. Because uh, like I said, most uh, zoos cannot operate on their admissions alone. That's fascinating. Do do would you say that most zoos uh, see themselves or aquariums as well, I guess, but animal attractions, uh, would you say that they mostly see themselves as educational institutions less focused on business because of that? Well, you can't say less focused on business because they got to stay alive. That's and true. So they've got a, a, a budget to balance and it's very businesslike. It just and and while education is a natural outcome, I wouldn't say zoos focus, you know, that's not their primary mission. Their primary mission is really conservation and uh, and the well-being of the animals. So education comes along with that and, and they certainly uh, push education through programs. Uh, but it's, it's really about uh, saving species and providing the opportunity for the public to engage so that they do, like the folks within the zoo, uh, spread that message and that uh, engagement so that everybody wants to save animals in the wild. Uh, and they can't do that until they understand. So uh, that's really why they exist, is to provide that understanding so they can make the link to our planet. Uh, yeah, so speaking of, of like the the conservation and the environment for, for the animals, uh, how much influence do um, like the, the zookeepers or other employees that, that work at the zoo, how much influence do they have over the design process? And what's it like working with people with maybe who don't have the design experience, but who are directly influencing uh, de like design and choices that you have to make? Yeah, well, they have a lot of influence because uh, we as designers trained as architects can't know everything about a Kawada Mundi or a, a sloth. <laughs> so we rely on their input and their interaction with the design process to help us understand uh, exactly what they need to thrive uh, in human care. And so they have uh, ongoing, a ongoing role of providing input and, and PJV destinations as experienced designers. To me, our job is to have the experience to know what questions to ask, because if uh, an architect who's not designed a lion exhibit before, if he relies, he or she relies on just uh, input they may get from either the administrators or some of the keepers, uh, to me, it wouldn't be a very good result. It, it really requires uh, having some experience to dig deeper and ask questions about enrichment and the physical environment, the psychological stimulation, the social interaction that that particular species need needs is all part of that one third of the trifecta. And so you have to know how to get what it takes to, to build that uh, dynamic environment so that the animals can thrive. And then at the same time, uh, working with those same folks, 
I mean, they do the conservation in the field. Some of those keepers take a week or a month off and go to Africa, go to Asia, go to South America to help save species in the wild. And so they have that input and bring back that we tie into the experience and into the messaging and even the delivery. We might think of a way to deliver a message and the, the content of the message or the way they learned it helps evolve that thinking so that it's fun and engaging. That's amazing. Yeah, I was yeah. I was uh, thinking about the trifecta the way you were you were putting it, and I was thinking a lot about like the needs of the guests to view and know more about the animals, and then I was thinking about the needs of the keepers to maintain the life of the animals. But I, I guess my brain just skipped the part where like keeping the animals happy is also going to be this huge thing, and I wonder if if there are if you've ever encountered like a unique challenge for the psychology of an animal um, working within the confines of what an animal in particular needs um, and, and maybe how that has affected uh, a certain exhibit, if at all. Well, it, it, it does affect almost every exhibit and it's about uh, like I said, allowing and encouraging the psychological stimulation and the social interaction and so the, the particular successes or challenges are to, um, to engage the public in ways that uh, animals, uh, animals have a new choice in their environment like they do in the wild. And so uh, we, we constantly strive to, to allow the animals to choose where they wanna be and what type of substrate they have and what type of stimulation, what, how the food is delivered, whether or not they forage to find uh, uh, tidbits like they would in the wild. And so the, the challenges come in moving animals around. Sometimes we move them overhead. Sometimes we move them uh, uh, in water beneath our feet or beneath the sidewalk to get from side to side of an exhibit so they can choose to be with the other penguins they like or or get away from other from another uh, individual in the in the collection so all of those things uh, you know we we work out together and and that's where we need to know well what are they physically capable of doing how how high can a lion jump up to a platform in order to to get a good perch to look out over its surrounding and outside of its exhibit? Uh, all of those things are important to providing animals with choice. Uh, so uh, what is your uh, relationship with the concept of educational design? And does it make your job harder or easier to design a space meant to foster education? Are there is there anything specific that you need to keep in mind when when designing educational spaces? Sure. So, you know, we've been talking a lot about the primary mission of most zoos and aquariums being conservation, and education plays a role in that. But, you know, educational design and education also clearly plays a huge role in things like science centers and museum exhibits, which is another big sector of work. And, you know, designing a space meant to foster education, it's sort of fundamental to achieving an institution's mission. And if we do our jobs right, we not only are creating an immersive and beautiful exhibit at a zoo or an aquarium, but also an experience 
from which the guest walks away with a greater understanding of the natural worlds. And, and so it's not really a matter of educational design making our job easier or harder. It's just fundamentally part of how we approach working on an exhibit or an attraction for a zoo or an aquarium or a science center or a, a museum exhibit. It's just sort of built into the DNA of what we design. It, it, it just needs to feel like that, right? It can't be something that we're beating the guest over the head with and saying, you know, this is what you're going to learn and you're going to learn it this way and here's how you're going to learn it. <laughs> it it's just has to be built into our, our, our design and as really talented architects that we have on staff and and the storytellers that we have if we do our jobs correctly that's how it feels that it's it's just part of what we do yeah and, and education is not just in a classroom sure we create spaces that that might look like classrooms but uh, they might be next to a polar bear exhibit so that that classroom serves many purposes it gives the opportunity to have children, even adults, in a space where the polar bear is just on the other side of the glass. It's also an overnight uh, camp out inside of a building that's weather protected. It might be a cocktail party area. Um, so education should be everywhere. I mean, it should be in the way we design a crawl under an exhibit with a pop-up window into meerkats so that you can see how one wants to be in the tallest spot to look out and and warn the others of danger and you happen to be right underneath that one that's sitting on top of the dome that that separates you and them um education can be uh putting people in with the animals and bringing animals to where people are expected to be uh, the Glacier Run exhibit at the Louisville Zoo is an example where we wanted to blur the barrier, the barriers between the public and the animals because uh, true in life, polar bears in certain parts of northern Canada come into cities and towns looking for food because it's less and less in their natural environment. And so that's a, a very impactful thing. So here in an exhibit in Louisville, Kentucky, we wanted to tell that story. So we did it purposely by blurring the barriers and, and, and having you walk through this town, uh, a former mining town, seeing bears overhead and behind here and in the back of a pickup truck and uh, far away near the glacier and you having the uneasy feeling of whoa, can, can that bear come here and, and am I safe? And so that is the way we chose to educate the public about real life uh, situation for bears in the wild. I love it. I love interactive or the, the idea of a, of, a, of a blurred line between uh, exhibits. Uh, one of my favorite places in the world when I was a kid was the uh, San Diego Wild Animal Park, which I think mm -hmm. has like the one of the the coolest that I've ever seen the this the space or the 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 idea that you can just drive through the area and see the animals up close that there's no there's no wall or cage between me and the elephant that I'm seeing that I love so much and I, I think that's that's so important both for um, for education and for uh, for guest experience and for like the story that you want to tell, um, but those kind of um, 
that kind of design or or maybe uh, the kind of interactivity that you get from that, it can be a, a really tricky line to uh, to walk, I think, when, when designing. Do you think that there's any kind of new um, or, or yet to be thought of uh, technology or um, or innovations that might help with uh, in the future when when designing uh, animal attractions that could in- increase that kind of um, interactivity or or you know guest association or um, or or just enhance the experience altogether. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of sort of emerging technologies. Uh, that zoos and aquariums have an opportunity to harness. I, I think there, are, I think there are really kind of three big ones, right? Um, augmented reality, and I'm not. I'm talking about augmented reality, not virtual reality, but augmented reality, where you're overlaying natural exhibits with real-world data, statistics, history, conservation, messaging, that sort of thing. And I think it allows you to deliver kind of a deeper layer of, of information for guests who want to dive that deep. And not everybody does, but we're all carrying around a supercomputer in our pocket. And, you know, it's much easier now to implement that type of augmented reality technology than it was in years past because we can do it on our phones. And I think it's there's a big opportunity for zoos and aquariums to, to harness that. The second one I think is gaming. Uh, I think the finding ways to create interactive experiences that lead guests to believe that they're playing a video game, which, you know, they do at home all the time and they do on their phones, but actually they're learning about the natural world. Uh, so like there's a, um, a game that we put in to um, uh, turtle trek at SeaWorld where you play as a turtle trying to find their way home and you're, you're playing against a few other people and you have to dodge the obstacles and you have to find the right food and eat the right food. And whoever, you know, finds the, the most food gets more, more points. And if you dodge the right predators, you get more points. And everyone's playing this game and they don't really realize that they're actually learning about how turtles survive in the wild. So I think those kind of real world opportunities are, are, are big. And it allows you to, you know, create bonds with the people that you come with as you work together to uh, to achieve goals. And then the third one, I think, is um, crowdsource technology. So this is where the space around an exhibit or even inside of an exhibit actually reacts and changes to the information that guests are providing. So they're providing it on their phone or they're, they're taking a poll or something, and the environment actually reacts to what they're responding. And then, you know, a show space can change based on the guest feedback or the reactions. You know, how many people are in the space? How are those people using the space? Where are they walking? So that sort of crowd tech, crowdsource technology, I think there's a huge opportunity for zoos and aquariums to take advantage of. And I think you're going to start to see lots of projects harness those abilities and harness those technologies because we all have this computer in our pocket. And I'll talk to the flip side, you know, we do a lot of uh, consumer research asking about expectations and desires of uh, guests as they visit all types of visitor attractions. And one of the things we've learned that uh, when asked about activities that people are doing less or more of in the last five years, 
is some of them are playing less video games and relaxing more, spending more time outside. And so we also know that there's a segment of people that go to zoos, aquariums, and, and other attractions to escape everyday life and the bombardment of news and fake news and uh, everything that's going on. And so we, we recognize that and, and uh, actively try to, to uh, please everyone's expectations as they yeah, go. Yeah, I would, I would say that there's definitely a, uh, a low-tech appeal to a lot of animal attractions. Uh, and, and Dave, when you said that um, we need to make the distinction between AR and VR, I was like, oh yeah, because if the next thing I do at a zoo mm-hmm. is put on a VR headset uh, so that I can view an exhibit... I'm not going to value that experience quite as much. There's something about the physical and the real um, and and focusing on some of those lower tech uh, solutions, I think, is a huge part of the value of what zoos and aquariums bring to the table from like an entertainment and delightfulness standpoint. Like I'm not delighted by a 3D model of a lion. I'm delighted when I <laughs> see one in real life. Uh, and as good as technology is getting, it uh, it is not the same. Uh, and uh, I, I really like that uh, there's this awareness of how technology can best be used and not this feeling that we've got to jump onto the new latest and greatest thing, especially in the themed space. Let's see. One, one thing that I was a little uh, more curious about is this idea of crowdsourcing the way an exhibit behaves, because I'm wondering about like, couldn't that negatively or adversely affect uh, guest experiences or even animal experiences? I, I think like if you get 50 people in there and they all say, now it's raining in this rainforest, that could be rather yeah, disruptive. Right. <laughs> right, and so, you go ahead, John. You, know, you, you might crowdsource on uh, influencing the choice of places that animals have to go. You know, we create these overhead sky trails for small primates or even overhead bridges for elephants and tigers, and they connect to a network. And, you know, if uh, as long as it's uh, positive for the animals and and the crowd may get to decide where they go or how they get there, you know, that, that's a way to engage the public in, in understanding how, you know, we, we tried to do that uh or we are doing that in an upcoming project of trying to get the public to understand that when parts of a forest are are cut down, it affects the way that animals can travel from one place to another seasonally or for mating or things like that. And so, you know, using a crowdsourcing to influence that for the sake of understanding is is a great idea and that it's not uh uh, doesn't have to be something that could be negative right and and i think that that's why you need to find really good designers to give the option to put the options out there and to give the crowd the right choices so that the choices aren't the bad ones that john's talking about right that that they get to choose from this positive choice, this positive choice, or this positive choice. So they're not going to make it uncomfortable for the animals, no matter what 
option is chosen, the animal's still going to be comfortable. It's just going to be a slightly different experience for this crowd versus a crowd that's going to be there in 20 minutes. Right. And they both feel engaged and like they, they had uh, a say in that animal's life on that day. Right. That's fascinating. I think I think that's a, a an extremely cool untapped piece of potential for, for any kind of themed environment. Um, it looks like we've got just one more question here, and it's about a particular project. Um, sure. Specifically, we have heard that the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta is considered mm -hmm. to be one of the best, if not the very best, aquariums in the country. <laughs> Um, and if you guys wanted to talk a little bit more about that project in particular, uh, that things that influenced your choices or uh, maybe reasons why it's so effective. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I spent a lot of spent many years working on the George Aquarium, the the when it first right before it first opened, and we really designed that guest experience to be as immersive as possible. Right? For us, it was about showcasing the species in their natural environment as much as possible. But really, when you walk out of the hub that's in the middle of that aquarium, transporting you to another world and a world that's different than the one that's next door to it so that the galleries are as unique from each other as possible. Uh, and so we spent a ton of time looking for opportunities to make that immersion happen and looking for opportunities to allow guests to get really up close and personal and make really up close and personal connections with the animals and really unique ways to view the animals so that, you know, in every gallery, we tried to create one really awesome, really giant wow moment. So like in the River Scout, you've got this incredible overhead river. It was one of the for I think the first time that anyone had done an overhead aquarium to that extent and that thematically driven, you know, over your head. And then in the in the cold water gallery, there's a two-story beluga whales. You can see them above water and underwater. And of course, there's the giant window in Ocean Voyager and and a massive coral reef tank that you can stand in front of and like really feel like you're standing in the coral reef as the waves are washing overhead. Those types of immersive experiences were something that we really spent a lot of time focusing on to really transport people to a natural environment in a really deep and meaningful way. Yeah. Another example is Edge of Africa at Bush Gardens in Tampa, where we were asked to design a hippo exhibit and it should include underwater viewing. And we learned by talking with keepers and staff that hippos spend a lot of time in the water, but not all the time. And, and so we decided we would do this exhibit as a slice down the river and not a cross section, a long slice down the middle of the river. And so we said, literally, we're going to design an aquarium that has colorful cichlid fish and other freshwater creatures that can live with hippos. And, and that this aquarium sometimes has hippos in it. And then it's really dynamic and behind the river and the dry land that the hippos live on, there are primates. So it's a, a multi-species uh, exhibit that uh, creates something to look at all the time and really is in a, a completely immersive exhibit because you, you walk down a ramp like you're walking down into the river and then it's cut in half uh, to look into. So it's, it's about finding, working with our clients to find out what we can do with each 
uh, animal species like rotating lions and hyenas who were mortal enemies in the wild and yet they're uh, a safe rotation of them in exhibits gives them stimulus uh, that that challenges their psyche and uh, and their and them physically um, so we constantly try to look for those opportunities in each new exhibit I love this idea of uh, creating a new and interesting perspective for people as they experience the exhibit. Uh, a view that would be impossible in nature, like a slice of a river, um, or of an underwater view of something that uh, normally you can only see from above the water. Uh, are there any other like really unique perspectives that you've tossed around as an idea or that you've been able to um, interact with like as an actual thing that got produced? Mm. Uh, uh, well, we love we love underwater views. Uh, you know, being able to get people underwater and stay underwater for as long as they want and see how the animals are behaving underwater. We love doing that. We love finding new ways to do that. Um, and then uh, I wish John could talk about the the next one that we're 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 hoping yeah. to do because I think the, it's be something really special. The flip side is to try and get people in the canopies, and we have uh, several clients where we're considering ideas to take people up. And you know, once you take folks up, well, the same as taking them down. <laughs> we as a society have decided that we have ADA guidelines that respect everyone in all forms of access. And so taking people up and putting them on boardwalks or on bouncy bridges, rope bridges, you know, is the way to, to get people closer to animals that live in the canopy. And then uh, giving them an exhibit that is vertical also, but yet has the proper uh, uh, amount of separation between people and animals, but it's about getting uh, an eye-to-eye -eye view, whether they live up in the tree, on the ground, or underwater. That's fantastic. And of, of course, we understand that some things are top secret. Um, Alice, did you did you have anything you wanted to uh, ask before we kind of move on to the wrap-up? Uh, so I guess the, the last question uh, I wanted to ask was uh, a, little, a little separated from, I guess, the uh, what we've been talking about, about animal attractions and more about uh, your your jobs and what you do. Uh, what I really wanted to know was for, for anybody that doesn't, that isn't familiar with attraction design or with PGAV destinations or, or with any of it, uh, what do you think maybe is the most surprising part of your job or what, what do you want to, to say about your job that is a uh, that maybe the average person might not know that uh, like a, a, a challenge or a, a quirk or something really interesting that uh, that people just might not be aware of when it comes to your jobs. Hmm. That's, a, that's a tough question. I, I, I have an answer. Um, I think people don't really realize the array of talent and the array of skill that goes into creating the attractions that we design. So our office is made up of architects, yes. It's made up of landscape architects, graphic designers, illustrators, scriptwriters, storytellers, industrial designers, sculptors, artists. Model builders. Model builders, an incredible host of people. 
and we really all work as a team to create these attractions. It's we're, We don't work in isolation and we can't do any of these projects, whether it's a zoo and aquarium or a theme park or a museum or science center, we can't do any of them in isolation. And so we all collaborate, we all pull resources from other teams, <clears throat> excuse me, and put everybody together to really come up with these attractions. And it really does take that many people to do it. Yes. And I'd like to add that, that we are uh, immersed in the natural sciences. We, I, I watch nature programs for my own personal uh, interest and because it makes me a better designer of animal exhibits and understanding uh, what makes a hippo thrive. Uh, you know, there are uh, natural things that come out, like I like gardening and I like uh, composting and I you know I, I try to conserve the planet on my own as much as I want to help my clients help people conserve wildlife so I, I think most people wouldn't wouldn't know that about me or about uh, people in my position and it's not required in my case it's it's just natural that's amazing. That's that's one. Those are perfect answers. Yeah, guys. This <laughs> um, <laughs> this interview has been has been so enlightening in so many ways. Uh, it I, I've learned more than I could have imagined I would have in this very short forty five minutes or so. Um, so so just as a kind of one last thing, sort of a sign off. Uh, if there was anything else you wanted to share with the audience, uh, all of whom are interested in this idea of treating theme parks. Uh, as a form of media that warrants uh, time and analysis and, uh, you know, attention as an art form. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to throw into that discussion? Maybe a question or uh, a bit of insight that you'd like to throw mm -hmm. our way? Um, maybe maybe an inspiration for a future episode. From uh, zoo and conservation and... and let's figure out how to how to make our planet long lasting i want to know what uh like to learn more about what the average visitor thinks they can do what they do already and how how can we take this engagement of of uh, like I said, blurring the barriers and crossing people into animal spaces and bringing animals into people spaces. And how can we do it better? How can we evolve as a society to, to make those interactions natural and, uh, and mutually beneficial? That's, that's my question. Yeah. Yeah. And along those same lines, you know, what are the what are the stories that are really interesting for people to learn, for people to hear? Um, what are the things that they're curious about? Uh, you know, how how deep a story are you interested in hearing? Um, and and where do you think that that stories can take you? Those are fantastic questions, uh, and I can't wait to ask them of our listeners, and and hopefully to get. Uh an answer going maybe even just between ourselves alice uh we can we can definitely think about them some more in the future for sure uh dave john of pgav destinations thank you guys both so much for coming on the show today it has been a joy uh really really fantastic i i can't thank you enough for volunteering your time and for joining us on this 
it's it's been so cool well alice here we are after having just said goodbye to dave and john on what was maybe the coolest interview ever uh ready to do an outro i mean like we ended that episode saying like this is the beginning of a larger conversation and where better to continue that conversation than on the internet on the internet uh, you can always find us on twitter our very favorite website uh, the show is at Happy Places Pod. If you want to uh, respond to anything that we've said on this episode, uh, tweet us there. You can also find me personally on Twitter and on Instagram at Alice White THP. And I'm at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Remember, Duquesne is spelled D U Q U E S N E. Uh, and Alice, you know, we also have a place where maybe we can get away from the character limits of Twitter and have lar- larger, longer, more in-depth conversations uh, that actually appear in a good, easy-to-read thread format. And that place is the Discord. The Discord server. We have a, a whole Discord server dedicated to talks about theme parks and rides and attractions and conversations like the one we had today and beyond. And if you'd like to join our Discord server, if you like Discord, if you've never even heard of it but think it sounds fun, shoot us an email at thosehappyplaces at gmail.com or tweet at us or private messages on Twitter, whatever you like. We'll send you a personalized link that you can join up and uh, continue this conversation with us. And Discord has a very special feature, a special private chat room for anyone who has uh, donated to us on Patreon. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Patreon.com slash those happy places. And it's thanks to patrons that we are able to... uh, you know, continue to support the show uh, a little bit monetarily. Special thanks to special patron Charles Gustine for your patronage. You are awesome, as is everyone who listens. We love, just thank you, everyone, for for listening, for donating, for for even giving us your time at all. Yeah, uh, we we cannot thank you guys enough for your support, uh, both, both on and off the Patreon. It is just amazing that anybody out there wants to listen to us talk about theme parks. And it's amazing that we were able to talk to these amazing experts today. Uh, I, I still can't believe it. <laughs> and we would not have done it without you. So thank you all. And thank you, buddy. Oh, Alice, thank you. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I can't wait to edit this episode um, and all of our audio tracks. It's going to be really fun. But you know what? I'm really going to enjoy trying to drop in some really great musical tracks, uh, all of which you can find at incompetech.com. Thanks to Kevin McLeod, who made all of his music compositions available under a Creative Commons license. So thank you, Kevin McLeod, so much for that excellent library of music. And big thanks to the California Feet Warmers and Phil Alvin for our amazing theme music, Golden Gate. Yeah. You can find all of their music at CaliforniaFeetWarmers.com. And Alice, as we say goodbye, I just want to say I am so glad that we're doing this project. It makes me so happy that we have branched out like this. This is the coolest. Uh, I can't wait for what comes next. I can't wait. And I would let... I would do it with no one else but you, buddy. And to everyone out there, thank you for listening, and we hope you return to those happy places. I'm getting tired of all this rain and snow. My weary heart is hollering.